Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. This video, or this audio I should say, will cover between Matthew 5.17 and Matthew 5.30. Matthew 5.17 says this, Do not think, Jesus says, that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now this is one of the most controversial verses in the scripture because it sounds like Jesus is saying that the law is here to stay. And of course we know that witches are not under the law as in the book of Romans. So there's the basic fundamental problem. As I go through this section, next several verses, I'm going to give you two views, the covenant theology view and the new covenant theology view on how to handle this. Before we do that, let's get some background out, out of the way. Do not think I came to abolish the law. That's referring to the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the ones that Moses wrote. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, of course, the prophets, according to the Jews, you had the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, or the latter prophets as they call them. You had the minor prophets, the 12 minor prophets, just as, as we call them, the minor prophets. And then you had the former prophets. These were the non-writing prophets, the prophets who were written about rather than who wrote. They were, they, their oral prophecies are recorded by other people. Okay, so... Jesus is saying, I'm not against Moses, I'm not against the prophets. Now, the writings are not mentioned. That's the third section of the Hebrew Bible, but usually law and the prophets refers to the whole shmir, the whole uh, canon, the old, old Testament Hebrew scripture. So, what Jesus is saying, there's nothing that I'm doing that's against the Old Testament, not just the, the Torah, but the Old Old Testament. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, to fulfill means to, the best way to look at it is the, to fulfill a type. So, all the, the Old Testament is just full of types. And I realize people can, can get type happy and start making up types where there aren't any types, but there's still so many of them, some of them which are explicitly labeled as fulfillments in the New Testament, that you can't avoid it. And so Jesus is saying the Old Testament is not bad. It's a good thing because it told about me. It's the type of me, the, the, the shadow of what I am the reality, of which I am the reality, and, and it points to me, and therefore it's good. There's nothing bad about it. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. Now, um, we're going to see that when Jesus fulfills the law, that means the law is not in, is not not does not have jurisdiction over us anymore because the law's validity is finished because Jesus establishes a new law. That's the new covenant theology position. That's the position I take. All right, now, why did Jesus say this? Why were there people thinking that he came to abolish the law of the prophet? Well, nothing he said so far in the Sermon on the Mount sounds so radical that it would be attacking Moses. It doesn't seem to me like, but it very well could be that those passages in the Sermon on the Mount were not necessarily given in that order. They're written in that order, but they might have given, been given in a different order. And there must have been enough teaching floating around by Jesus where it was radical because as we get on into the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see it was said to you, but I say to you, it sounds like he did come to abolish the law and the prophets. Jesus didn't want to start a revolution, and he didn't want to get people to hate Moses or any of the Old Testament. But he was so radically different that people could easily get that idea, I think, that the Old Testament, uh, because it's going to be superseded, is therefore evil, no, or, or bad in some way. No, it's not bad. It's a good thing, but proceeded. Now, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I did not come to abolish. When was the law abolished? Well, it was not abolished until Jesus died and he rose again. That's when the law was abolished. Now, remember, now Jesus is talking before that, before his death and resurrection. So during his ministry, during his life, the law of Moses was still in effect. And so he could easily say, look, I'm not here to abolish the law. 
I'm, you know, I'm not trying to abolish the law. Now, it was abolished when he died, but he wasn't dead yet. He was still teaching. Now, the meaning of abolish differs according to those two different theological systems that I told you about. The Reformed say the ceremonial and civil aspects of the Mosaic law are abolished, but the moral law remains. Jesus never abolished that. However, New Covenant theology and dispensationalism, the third major theological system that deals with this, New Covenant theology and dispensationalism say that the ceremonial, civil, and moral aspects and the moral aspects of the Mosaic law are abolished. It's all abolished and replaced by the law of Christ, say the New Covenant theology people. Let me give these two verses that talk about the law of Christ in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 9.21, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, meaning the law of Moses, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So now the law of God in this age is the law of Christ. The law of God in the Old Covenant was the law of Moses, but that's been abrogated or abolished. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Fulfill then means completed, executed, and over with. Now, I realize that what I just said is actually controversial according to Reformed theology, covenant theology, and we're going to get into that in just a little bit. But just to give you an overview as we start here, uh, I want to say from my point of view, from New Covenant theology point of view, that Jesus is doing two things. One, he's saying, look, the Old Testament is good, the law of the prophets, everything about the Old Testament is good, but it points to me, and therefore I fulfill it. And when I fulfill it, that's when it's going to be abolished. Not now, during my earthly ministry. Go into verse 18, Matthew 5. Jesus says this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Well, now, that does sound like the law is un abolished and that when Jesus says I did not come to abolish the law he meant he was not going to abolish it until heaven and earth pass away not when he died on the cross but until the end of time not even the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished at the end of time when heaven and earth pass away well that can't be what it means I don't care what position you take if you're a covenant theologian you say well the law is still here in its moral aspects but the civil and ceremonial parts of the law are abolished. The problem with that is, he says, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law. That includes the ceremonial and civil. Not the smallest letter or stroke. That's all of it. So how can you say that until the end of the time, uh, none of the moral law is not abolished? Because the moral law is expressed with small letters and small strokes in the Old Testament. All right, now, let me just give you some a background of how the two different theological systems deal with this. Covenant theology is trying to say that Jesus is not speaking against Moses. He's not saying, he's not trying to change the law of Moses and make it pass away. What he is doing, rather, is speaking against keeping the man-made traditions of hypocritical legalistic Phariseeism. And Jesus was also speaking of keeping the Mosaic law in a hypocritical external fashion rather than with a heart attitude that's proper, which is basically Phariseeism. They break the law inwardly in their minds while they externally uh, maintain the law. So they keep the letter of the law while violating the laws internally. So Jesus is not speaking against the law of Moses to abolish it, according to covenant theology. Rather, he is speaking against the perversions of that law by the Pharisees. New covenant theology, on the other hand, says that Jesus is not speaking against the validity of the Mosaic law. In the time of the Mosaic law, he said, yeah, during the old covenant, the Mosaic law is valid. But after that time, in the new covenant, 
He will abrogate Moses' law and replace that law with the law of Christ. This is a huge fundamental distinction that will determine how you interpret the verses. Now, what does it mean until heaven and earth pass away? Now, here's some options as to what that could mean. Option number one, it can mean the end of the physical world. But the problem with that is that would make the law valid all during the New Covenant era. Era. It would violate the whole book of Hebrews, which says the law is passed away, and Christians are free from the law in Romans. What do we do about that? So this becomes a problem, as I said, both for covenant theology and new covenant theology. So what are some solutions? Well, first of all, we could. here's one possible solution that I came up with, which is no good, actually. It's just a speculation. We could say that the Mosaic law is valid for Jews who reject Christ, so that heaven and earth will not pass away for the Jews. They will be under the law until until the end of time. Now, the problem with that is that a lot of Jews are not under the law now. They don't give any recognition to the law of Moses. I don't think this is a very probable solution. The next possible solution is the Reformed view, which says that the moral aspect of the Mosaic law survives until the end of the world, but the ceremonial and civil parts are abolished. That way you get away from the problem of having to stone rebellious kids and stone homosexuals and all that other stuff that's in the civil law that obviously doesn't apply today planting gardens that where you can't mix tomato seeds with the potato seeds and all that kind of thing. Uh, this is the standard reform view, but the problem with that reform view, it is very hard and arbitrary to separate out moral, civil, and ceremonial laws. There's a famous passage, which I don't have in my notes here, but there's a, a famous passage. You can go to the Old Testament and read the Old Testament passage, and you will see mixed together, this is in Exodus somewhere, it mixed together ceremonial, moral, and civil laws all in the same passage. Let me give you a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Well, let me give you one from F.F. F. Bruce first to show how hard it is to separate, separate out moral, civil, and ceremonial law. Says Bruce, again, Quote, again, it is sometimes said that Christ is the end of the ceremonial law. This has no place in Pauline exegesis. It has to be read into Paul, for it is not a distinction that Paul himself makes. Read the Bible. You will never see this ceremonial, legal, and civil distinction that, that Reformed theologians make all the time. It's written in the Westminster Standards. It's not in the Bible, though. Let me give you a good quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. The expression, till all be fulfilled is much the same in meaning as it shall be had in undiminished and enduring honor from its greatest to its least requirements until living. And I think what Jameson Fawcett and Brown mean is, is that when Jesus reestablishes his law, his law will make the Mosaic law honorable because everybody can see that he just expands the Mosaic law and makes it at a higher level makes it more strict, actually. Jameson, Vossett, and Brown continue. Again, this general view of viewing our Lord's, our Lord's words here seems far preferable to that doctrinal understanding of them which would require us to determine the different kinds of fulfillment which the moral and the ceremonial parts of it were to have. In other words, we can't distinguish between when the ceremonial law is fulfilled at the death of Christ and the civil law is fulfilled at the death of Christ, but the moral law is fulfilled at the end of time. That just doesn't cut it. It's complicated. Put Occam's razor on it. Cut it up. Forget it. Either the law cannot be divided like that. It's either established until the end of time, if that's what heaven and earth means, or it's abolished at the time of the cross. Now, interestingly, I have heard, I think it was Richard Gaffin, the famous Reformed theologian in a podcast, say that we, that Reformed people need to get off of this moral, civil, and ceremonial distinction. It's just too hard to make. I think he's right. The book of Hebrews doesn't make distinction, nor anywhere else in the Bible does it make 
the, the distinction. So, then what does until heaven and earth pass away? Well, here's another option. Jesus is speaking hyperbolically. He's saying, look, if it were possible for heaven and earth to pass away, which of course it is not, then the law would also pass away. In other words, the law is going to be here until I die. It's not going to pass away. Heaven and earth would have to pass away for the law to pass away before I die and all is accomplished. I think that's probably the answer. Now, here's a, another alternate solution. That, that answer about Jesus speaking hyperbolically, that's the typical New Covenant theology solution to this problem. There's another solution, which is not by a New Covenant theology guy, but by a theonomist, which is exact, theonomy is exactly opposite of New Covenant theology, because they, these theonomists say that all the law, civil, ceral, cer, civil, ceremonial, and moral law, is established all the way to the end of time. But I found a theonomist theologian, Chilton, who says this. He said that, it's re, that Jesus was referring to the rabbinic order, that heaven and earth was a rabbinic term for the rabbinic Jewish order. So until heaven and earth pass away, when heaven and earth pass away, the law will pass. In other words, when the rabbis pass away, the law is going to pass away. And that happened, of course, when Jesus died on the cross. Everything is accomplished. The Old Testament order, the sacrificial system, and so forth means nothing. I present that to you. I don't know whether it's true or not, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Now, let's look at the word accomplished. Let me read the verse again. I should say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. When is that accomplished? As I said, if it's to the end of time that brings nothing but trouble and the only way to get out of it will say it's everything is accomplished at the end of time that means you have to split out the moral law and make it be accomplished at the end of time and the civil and ceremonial law accomplished at the death of christ which i don't believe if you take the new covenant position and say that jesus abolished the law and replaced it with the law of christ well then you got a problem because all that didn't happen when heaven and earth passed away at the end of time that happened at the death of christ so on the new covenant theology view we're going to we're going to take accomplished as when it was accomplished on the cross when Jesus died. In my opinion, that's the only option that makes the verse make any sense at all. Now, when Jesus said not one stroke or smallest letter will pass away, the King James has not one jot or tittle. He is referring to Hebrew letters, actually. The iota is one translation, the NIV Study Bible says, that iota is the nearest Greek equivalent for, for the Hebrew, for the smallest Hebrew letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So not even the smallest letter that my English version's here. Not even the smallest letter, that's the smallest Hebrew letter, the NASB, I'm sorry. Now the smallest letter shall pass away, and stroke refers to a horn, which is a slight embellishment or extinct extension of certain letters in the Hebrew alphabet. This is according to the study Bible. So you're talking about a little tiny little Philip, a little curly Q on a Hebrew letter is going to, all of those are going to be there. Not one of those will be taken away. This is hyperbole. Jesus is saying, quit worrying guys. I'm not here to abolish the law. It's going to be in effect until all is accomplished when I die. Verse 19 in Matthew 5, Jesus goes on, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus, in my opinion, is carefully guarding himself from extremists in his own ranks, those who would put him up on a white horse, put a sword in his hand, and say, let's go charge and get the Romans. Now, that's a possibility. That's who he was aiming at, but uh, actually, I don't really think that's who he was aiming at. John Gill says that he was aiming at some Jewish doctors of the law who said the Sanhedrin could void the law, which was true. Some of the Jewish doctors of the law could do that. And sometimes wise men or prophets could do that. And Jesus is saying, nope, can't do that. 
I, I don't even allow that. The law is given by God. You don't change it. And Adam Clark and Jameson Farsett and Brown is talking about the says that Jesus is talking about the Pharisees who were famous for making distinctions between the weightier and lighter matters of the law with a view for avoiding the lighter matters. They came up with all their silly, stupid rules so that they could actually annul the law. For example, you're supposed to swear by God and, and it's supposed to keep a, a, a true oath, but no. Uh, you swear by the temple instead of to pay the loan back, but you don't swear by the gold of the temple, and only this swearing by the gold of the temple is true. Therefore, I don't have to keep my vows. So therefore, what happens to truth? What happens to the Mosaic law uh, that does not allow for that sort of thing? So we're going to look at this. Uh, I think that there's a lot of truth to that, that Jesus is speaking against the Pharisees, but I don't think that's all of what he's doing, he's also abrogating the law of Moses. And that's what makes the conflict between the New Covenant theology and Reformed theologians, the Covenant theology theologians, so interesting and so difficult is because there's there's uh, arguments on both sides that are pretty strong. And I'm going to go through them as we go through the rest of the of the sermon. But this, this verse right here favors the Reformed Covenant theology view because it sounds to me like he's aiming himself at the Pharisees. He's aiming his words at the Pharisees who are annulling the commandment by their stupid interpretations of the law. Because Jesus was always jumping on Pharisees. So that, that's an argument in favor of the reform from the context. Now, Jesus is talking about whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments before he dies. Because remember, he's going to annul all of the commandments when he dies. And he's going to replace those commandments with his commandment, including all the laws he's given here on the Sermon on the Mount. Let's go to Matthew 5.20. For I say to you, to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, he's getting at the idea, quit quit, and quit disemboweling the law with all your traditional interpretations that get you away from, to get you away from keeping the law. Now here, he is probably talking to the whole crowd. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount started, he was speaking to his disciples, most probably, and then people debate, whether is he speaking to disciples or is he speaking to the whole crowd, listening to him? He's probably talking to the whole crowd here, I think. Now, why does he distinguish out scribes and Pharisees? Well, because a lot of scribes were Pharisees, but not all scribes were Pharisees. In fact, some of the scribes were Sadducees. Well, what was a scribe? A scribe was somebody who, uh, very similar to a notary today, they, uh, they, they were a profession. They wrote out important documents for business, religion, etc. They would sign things, but they were a professional group. But they could be Pharisees or they could be Sadducees. So usually that's why you see that phrase, scribes and Pharisees split out instead of just Pharisees. And he says that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I think he's referring to the ethics that Christians are going to adopt when the Holy Spirit comes and forms the church. And that Christians' righteousness is going to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees because their righteousness was hypocritical, external formality, holding to the form of the law, but denying the essence thereof, hypocritical, keep, hypocritically keeping the law. That's not going to happen when people follow Jesus and they believe in him. Matthew 5:21. Jesus gives the first antithesis. There are so-called six antitheses here. Jesus says, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say unto you, he says in the next verse, and there's your antithesis. You've heard something, but I'm going to tell you something different. There's six of those antitheses. We're going to do two of them in this audio. 
You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not, shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, the covenant theology position says that what was being heard by the people and who the ancients were were the ancient rabbis, which actually they weren't that ancient. They were just a couple hundred years ancient, but that's ancient enough, I guess. You have heard that the rabbi said you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, you, shall need, should, shall, you shouldn't even be angry, the next verse, which I haven't read yet. So there's a contrast according to covenant theology, contrast between the nasty Pharisees and Jesus. Adam Clark Ironically, since he's not Reformed, he's an Arminian. But Adam Clark gives this typical Reformed interpretation when he says this, quote, It is very likely that our Lord refers here merely to traditions and glosses relative to the ancient Mosaic ordinance, and such as by their operation rendered the primitive command of little or no effect. So... There's your view that Jesus is attacking the Pharisees. Uh, the covenant theologians go further to, to back up their view by saying that Jesus, that the people could not have heard it said that you shall not commit murder. Because Moses didn't say you shall not murder. He said, well, Moses said you shall not murder. But Jesus said you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Jesus adds a phrase. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. And Moses didn't have that phrase. Therefore, Jesus is not quoting the Moses. Mosaic law in order to change it, he's quoting the Pharisees. Well, now here's the New Covenant theology answer to that, and I think it's overwhelming. NCT people say that Jesus, we cannot expect Jesus to quote Moses word for word. He quoted Moses in his essence because if you say you shall not murder, it's implied by Moses that if you murder, you're going to be, you're going to stand liable to the court. So Jesus is quoting Moses in its essence when he's, when Moses says you should not commit murder and Jesus says you've heard it said you should not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Those two statements are the same thing. He's quoting Moses basically directly and then he says but I say unto you later don't you can't even be angry. All right. Besides, there's another new covenant theology response to the covenant theology position. To say that Jesus is quoting the Pharisees is actually illogical. Why would it be bad for a Pharisee to say whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court? How is that a Pharisaic perversion of the Mosaic law? It's not. It's actually that which naturally follows from being from committing murder. You're going to be liable to the court. There's nothing. There's no perversion there. So Jesus couldn't have been attacking a Pharisaic perversion. All right, well, let's move on with some extra uh, details here that have nothing to do with the controversy. First of all, this word murder, whoever commits murder, murder justly take the life of the else. It does not mean, uh, it's a, a more specific example of the broader word to kill. There are justifi justifiable killings. For example, when you kill somebody in war, that's not murder. When you kill somebody in self-defense, that's not murder. So this is talking about whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. I remember a Democratic congressional candidate was asking me why, since I was pro-life, was I also cap in favor of capital punishment because both of them were killing. And I said, no, one of them is murder, that's the abortion. The other is killing, which is uh, society's just defense and is backed up in the scripture before, during, and after the law. There is a huge distinction. Well, what do you, how do you expect a Democrat congressional candidate to make such elementary distinctions? It's not going to happen. All right, so much for the term murder. Now let's go, uh, let's, let me state the New Covenant Theology position 
The old covenant law never said anything about anger being liable to judgment. I guess I should read the next verse here, Matthew 5:22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So that was definitely not in the Mosaic law. So what the New Covenant theology people say, look, the Old Covenant law said you're not supposed to murder. But I say to you, Jesus says, but I say to you, you're not even supposed to be angry. And the Mosaic law never said anything about it's illegal to be angry. So Jesus is adding to the Mosaic law by making it stricter, making it tougher. That's the first point. Second point in favor of New Covenant theology is there's no evidence that the Pharisees said, you won't be judged for anger. It's okay. Be angry all you want. And Jesus is saying, but I say to you, you can't be angry. There's no contrast there between what the Pharisees said and what Jesus said. So Jesus is not contradicting the Pharisees. And there's something that I've noticed in this debate. On page 159 on in John Murray's Principle of Conduct, where he sets out the typical reform position on this, he, our, this caught my eye. He says, it is probable that Jesus was speaking against Pharisaic perversions of the Mosaic law. And I don't remember whether it was this antithesis or one of the other five, but I noticed that it is probable. And so I started looking for evidence. Where is the Reformed evidence that the Pharisees were doing this? And in all of the six antitheses, I can only find one antithesis where the Pharisees were actually perverting the Mosaic law and Jesus was dumping on them. And Jesus corrected that. There's no problem. But other five, there's no proof that I know of. I even sent a letter to a Reformed th uh, Ph.D., I said, in this debate, I can't find any evidence. Can you show me something? I've never heard anything from her. It could be she lost my email. Or because it could be there is no evidence. It's just speculation on the part of covenant theologians. I don't know. But at any rate, in verse 22, we have the antithesis to the Moses. To Moses. Moses says, don't murder. Jesus says, don't get angry. So let's look at verse 22. But I say to you, there's the antithesis, that everyone who is angry shall be guilty before court. Now, we're going to have a hierarchy here. Angry here is what Jesus is complaining about, and the angry person goes before the court. It's not the Supreme Court, but the court. So this could be one of the uh, courts of lesser jurisdictions which were scattered out through Israel. But whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, that means you empty head, you bonehead, you moron, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. That's the higher court, probably the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And then you get down to the last the last thing that you say to your brother, you fool, which means you depraved, degenerate. Uh, the Hebrew word is, the Greek word is more, probably from the Hebrew word mara, which means to re rebel, a, rebe a rebel against God, apostate from all good. In other words, a real bad thing to call somebody. And so the punishment gets worse and worse and worse. And by the way, that shows that there is distinction in punishments. A lot of times people say, well, breaking the law, uh, committing a little sin is exactly the same as committing a big sin. No, it's not. That, that violates common sense. But you'll hear Christians say that all the time. And what they're doing is they're confusing things. To get you into hell, all it takes is one little sin or a big sin. They both get you into hell. So in that sense, they're equal. But when it comes to temporal punishments on this earth, I'm telling you, I'd much rather shoplift something for a quarter than go out and murder somebody. There's going to be a huge difference in those kinds of sins. And Jesus makes distinctions right here. The court, Supreme Court in hell, the punishment gets worse and worse and worse and more and more serious. Because good for nothing, calling somebody good for nothing, getting angry at somebody is bad, but calling somebody an empty head is a little bit worse. And then, then some, calling somebody, you fool, you idiot, in English, it doesn't come across too good. You, you reprobate, you lost apostate. You degenerate, and you go into hell. It gets even worse and worse. Now, hell there is the word Gehenna. Of course, Gehenna was a trash dump. 
out in the tire pre- the excuse me the valley of Ben Hinnom right there on the south of the Jerusalem where the tip of Jerusalem goes down where the valley of Hinnom intersects the tire pre- Tyropean Valley and they would burn bodies out there corpses trash filth and also at sometimes in Israel's history they would actually sacrifice children to idols it's a bad place and that's a great great analogy a great metaphor that Jesus used that's hell you're guilty of hell okay. Now, I just said that the courts here, I was referring to the Jewish temporal courts. There's a problem with that, and John Gill points it out, is that a, a, a Jewish temporal court's not going to take a case of somebody being angry or calling somebody a good-for-nothing, an empty head, moron, or for even calling somebody a fool. That's not actionable cases at law. So Gill says that this is referring to the heavenly courts. Again, we're talking about higher law here, the G- law of Christ as opposed to the law of Moses or higher than the Jewish law that was set up at that time. So probably Jesus, and I think Gil's got a good point here. He's probably talking about, you're going to be liable to me for having these nasty attitudes towards your brother and sisters, and you're going to be liable spiritually. You're going to see me in heaven and end up in hell, of course, unless you repent. I think that's probably true. And, and by the way, one way to distinguish the Mosaic law from the law of Christ, the Mosaic law is given for a judicial system. The Old Testament Jews were a theocracy. They had to have a military. They had laws. Most of the people were unregenerate. There were very few of them really believed in God. Whereas the New Covenant is not a theocracy. It's not a political kingdom. There are no courts, not, not or at least not courts that handle civil things like rape, murder, and theft. There is no military. It's a spiritual organization, so things are different. And in the New Covenant, you have the Holy Spirit to help you keep this higher law, whereas in the Old Testament, they didn't. So it's two different law systems. And to mix them up, uh, you got problems. That's why I think the New Covenant theology position is right. Moses said to you, but quit using the law of Moses for your relationships with your brother. That's under the civil theocracy. Now use my law, the law of Christ, for your relationships with your Christian brothers the church. Things are a lot different. There, the commandments are higher, they're stricter, and you got the Holy Spirit helping you do it. Before we leave this verse, let me say something about that word fool. Calling somebody a fool does not send you to hell if it's not done with malice or forethought. For example, when Paul told the Galatians that they were foolish because they began with the, the Spirit and they're going to end up with the law, he wasn't sent to hell. It means calling somebody a fool with malice or forethought with hatred in your heart. Paul was just merely stating the fact, and he had the Galatians' best interest at heart. He didn't have malice in his heart. Let's go to Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Now, this reconciliation, of course, this is something that the law of Moses, a civil law, doesn't really talk about. That is more interested in restitution. But this is a personal reconciliation. So the law of Christ, the law of Jesus, is mainly talking about relationships. So if you're presenting your offering at the altar, like a good Jew, your vow offering, your thank offering, and all of a sudden you got you remember that your brother has something against you, that means you've offended your brother somehow. You've screwed him somehow. You've hurt him somehow. Don't go on with your formal religious exercise, but go to your brother and make it right with him. That's the way we're supposed to do things. Before you go to church, before you take communion, before you do anything, go to your brother and make everything right. 
be reconciled to him, and then go do your religious stuff. Now, that's easy enough, but now it's an interesting question. What happens if it's not that your brother has something against you, but you have something against your brother? Should you go to him and be reconciled? Well, the Christian in you probably says, yeah, you probably should do that. I remember I was asked this in China one time. I hadn't thought about it, and I wasn't really sure of what the answer was. Uh, but after some cogitation, I found some other scriptures. Romans 12:18 says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So... If your brother has screwed you and you've got something against him, Matthew 5.23 doesn't say anything about that. But as far as it depends on you, should you be at peace with him? Go to him and try to reconcile. Now, of course, a lot of people won't be reconciled. Some people are just horses' asses. They're just not going to reconcile. Some people are so full of bitterness you can't deal with them. Well, Paul says to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you. In other words, you do everything you can and then leave it up to God. If they don't reconcile with you, that's their problem, not yours. Mark 11, 25, verse 26 says this. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. In other words, if somebody screws you, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. That's a textual question whether that verse belongs in there, that last verse. And that has a lot of theological problems about does Jesus forgive you? We're not going to talk about that. We'll talk about that when we get to Mark. But the point is, is uh, if anybody... If anybody has done something to you, you forgive them. And if you want to, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with them, go to them and try to get reconciled. So at least be forgiven them in your mind and your heart, even if you can't forgive them by your actions. And I would say, go, you know, go to them and say, hey, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Much as, it's amazing the power of those two words, of those three words, I am sorry. So I've seen it several times where it's just, it's just joyous, <laughs> the feelings that you have when somebody says it to you or when you say it to them. Higher law here. Jesus has got the law of Christ uh, in his mind here as he's presenting it to the people, and it's higher than the law of Moses. Matthew 5, verse 25 and 26. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. This is continuing the thought that somebody's got something against you. You owe them something. You screwed them. And in fact, they're taking you to court, and, this, and Jesus is assuming here that you're guilty. Make friends with it. I mean, settle it up, as the NIV actually puts it, settle matters, with your opponent. Pay him what you owe him, so you don't get thrown into prison. Is what you deserve. Now, and by the way, this is not necessarily an enemy. enemy it just might mean a creditor. Now, it's interesting here. Jesus might have been using a homely analogy between debtors and creditors to refer to our debt to God, not just a person's monetary debt to another person, but our debt to God. And Jesus is getting the people ready by saying, you need to pay your debts to God. You owe him your life. And if you don't pay that debt, you're going to end up in prison, i.e. hell. So that would get them ready for the fact that the Savior, to save them. from. Now, this idea that you will not come out of prison until you paid up the last cent, this verse has absurdly been used to support purgatory. And there, and you got to pay up what you owe. you got to do some good works while you're in purgatory so before you get out. Let's go to Matthew 5. Well, let's stop right here. Matthew 5:27 is going to be another antithesis, the second one. You have heard that you're not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery within her heart. We'll take that up in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.